0: You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about the impact of anti-trans legislation and what providers can do to break down barriers to care for gender-diverse populations. But first up, let's talk about digital redlining. Is telehealth the great equalizer to healthcare? Well, during the pandemic, it became how we connected with doctors. In fact, telehealth use among Medicare patients increased more than 63 fold from 2019 to 2020. And that's a trend we're seeing throughout healthcare. And even as the pandemic wanes, it seems telehealth is here to stay. But is virtual care the golden ticket to a reimagined health system? Maybe not. A 2020 study published in the journal Population Health Management found that 97% of people living in affluent urban areas have access to reliable broadband, but only 65% of people in rural areas have access. And people in urban areas access telehealth services more than people in rural communities. Catherine Barnett is a researcher at Boston Medical Center. She and some colleagues looked into how telehealth exacerbates health inequities. They published a perspective article explaining digital redlining, which is the process of marginalizing groups through the use of digital technologies. The concept comes from the historical practice of redlining and housing discrimination. In the article, Barnett and her co-authors suggest ways to reduce digital redlining and increase access to digital health care. Well, that article caught the eye of our own Annie Berkey, so she sat down with Barnett to talk about the future of telemedicine and health equity in 2023. Here they are.
1: Catherine. thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Just to give listeners a bit of context, um, this interview was supposed to happen twice before, The first time there was an issue with the platform and I had to contact the platform's customer service and go through all these people. And then the second time I'm actually in a rural setting right now and there was issue with the broadband internet. Um, So Catherine, can you talk a little bit about how that is a great example of the potential issues in telehealth?
2: Absolutely. So, so Annie, you know, I think, I think you actually had the lived experience, um, that so many of my patients and and folks uh, in the community where I am, so I'm actually not in a rural community, but I work at at Boston Medical Center, which is New New England's largest safety net hospital, um, where people really have similar problems in terms of connectivity uh, to Wi-Fi. And part of what we're going to be talking about today, I know, is that you know the connectivity is one barrier, but the, it is not the only barrier in terms of tech equity, which we need to be incredibly focused on right now as we continue to think about telehealth and its implications for the future of healthcare.
1: Yeah, I love that tech equity. I don't know if anyone has coined the term tech equity, but uh, yes. I'm going to coin it now. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> you are not you are not the first.
1: Um, but, <laughs> Disappointing.
2: You're an early you're an early adapter.
1: Well, I think what's really interesting there is um, talking about telehealth as a double-edged sword. I mean, I could see contenders stating that those who want to use the tech can, and those who don't or don't want to, um, will continue to do exactly what they've been doing, no better, no worse. So why is this weapon against health inequity propagating inequity?
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, I shared a little bit about the background about where I am. So Um, I think we can all just remind ourselves, right, it's nobody really wants to go back to March of 2020. Um, But pre-March 2020, telehealth did exist, although it was incredibly rare, small pockets. We didn't have a lot of good data to support um, outcomes in terms of clinical outcomes for certain telehealth modalities and chronic disease. Um, But, you know, March 2020 hit, everything went to telehealth. And we actually at our hospital were adequately and really um, accurately trying to measure what was happening and and our system like health systems around the country saw a 300 increase fold um, of use of telehealth and so we said okay this is an amazing opportunity right because we're we're in a healthcare system, that again, you know, greater than 50% of our patients earn less than $20,000 a year. And that's as a whole family. And greater than 30% of our patients don't speak English as a first language. Um, and, you know, hence the, the safety net hospital piece of it. And so here we are. We finally have a tool to think about access, right? Because we know that lack of access to medical care is one of the biggest inequities that, that, happens in traditionally marginalized communities in terms of thinking about outcomes. So with all those barriers removed, what will be the health outcomes and what will be the access outcomes? And obviously, it's difficult to sort of do apples per apples, right? Because you can't compare data from pre-March 2020 to post-March 2020 and have it be the same. Our entire ecosystem was disrupted. Um, but one of the things that we found, and and I worked uh, myself with um, people at the BU School of Business and actually the BU Anti-Racist Um Center um, by Ibram Kendi, his institute. And and we were actively looking at is that um is access enough? Right? So if we actually create opportunities for people to be um on broadband or have better Wi-Fi, is that enough? And and one of the things that I know we'll talk about is that is not enough. That in and of itself is not enough. Unless we radically address some of the inequities that continue to exist in communities, we will have the other edge of the sword where we're actually perpetuating these health inequities committed to health equity work for nearly two decades. And I've never seen an opportunity so poignant for change and yet um, so filled with potential for just going down the exact same Rabbit hole of health inequities if we don't start to act around it.
1: Yeah, I think saying access is not enough is a really good place to start. Um, And in that perspective research paper that you published with colleagues from Boston University and Boston Medical Center, you listed the two primary barriers to virtual care as digital fluency and the capacity for health advocacy. Why do you think virtual care as it stands today does not allow for patients to advocate effectively for themselves? Well,
2: first of all, um, part of it was the platform, right? So as we were, you know, everybody uses the analogy that you're uh, building the airplane while you're learning to fly it. Um, And that was absolutely what was happening for us. And I know institutions around the country. Um, And so it was a really binary platform where, you know, a provider would log on and a patient would log on. And you wouldn't have any of the other infrastructural supports that we now have as part of the patient center medical home. So if I have a patient who walks in and endorses having um, not enough food to eat or unsafe place to live or wanting a GED or any of those things, when it's a live visit, I can actually call in my patient advocates. I can call in a pharmacy. I can call in say if they're, they're depressed, I can call in a social worker. Um, but when it's that kind of one-on-one, you don't have the opportunity to get everybody on the same platform. Those things are changing, but not fast enough. Um, and part of it too is patients don't always know what to ask for, right? So we weren't adequately doing all the social determinants of health screening that we do again in the in-person visit. So um, that advocacy really comes from knowing what's possible, right, as part of the patient center medical home, and not always knowing how to ask for it. And frankly, you know, you have these still 20 minute aliquots of time, uh, where half the time people are stumbling around trying to get on a platform. So that goes back to, you know, the, the other prong, which you, you mentioned, which is the fluency, um, and the difficulty with the technology fluency.
1: And I also see translation as um, translation as a big issue there. Uh, two companies that I think of are City Block and Zocalo Health, and both of them mm-hmm. really work to have health advocacy individuals step into the call um, yes. and also have translators on the call ready to go.
2: Absolutely. And again, those are things that we are uh, building into platforms now. The question is, is how can we get those kinds of platforms, that kind of advocacy built into more traditional medical systems, mm-hmm. especially th- those Um, like, like Boston Medical Center, um, and the Boston Medical Centers of the country, um, where again, it's, we're, you know, considered a safety net hospital. And,
1: and so as we look at these more traditional systems, um, in which areas or specialties of healthcare do you see telehealth having the potential to decrease inequities the most?
2: Ideally, all, all, all systems, right? I mean, I think what we know right now is some of the places where um, it's been most successful, and that we have the most need right now is sort of thinking around mental health. Um, so, as as we know, we're in a crisis, a mental health crisis as a country right now um, for all ages, and there's a lot of stigma in and in, in pockets of population, certainly in, in populations uh, with whom I have the honor of working. Um, so really, as we think about um, increasing access and decreasing barriers for people to get counseling, to get psychiatry, um, and all of those pieces, that's, that's obviously huge. We've also seen it in terms of um, some of the reproductive health um, and justice work that folks are doing in terms of thinking about how do you get um, women access to medications that they need in a timely manner without, you know, making them sort of come in for, for things, um, and, and creating unnecessary barriers and burdens for populations.
1: Yeah. And I think there were, it's interesting to bring up barriers. So redlining, obviously that was a term in your perspective paper, um, digital redlining was the exact term, but of course, in a real estate setting, um, that's something more active. It's refusing a loan to someone because they live in an area that is deemed a credit risk. And these areas are largely populated by racial and ethnic minorities, as we know. Um, But it sounds like digital redlining is much more passive. So why do you still think the term digital redlining is the best thing to explain this gap?
2: Yeah, such a great question. So um, as you already kind of alluded to, redlining is a term that has been used historically for thinking about bank loans and where people can live. In Boston, many other places, is 1930s. This was a, a very active push um, to keep people, um, particularly African-Americans, um, out of certain communities and making it therefore very difficult to get loans and, and sort of um, therefore concentrating um frankly, you know, inadequate housing with poor resources in one, you know, part of the city. Now, if you take that map from digital, uh, from the redlining um, of the 1930s and you transpose it onto maps now, um, you actually will see those exact same places that were um, at the you know sharp, sharp pointed edge of the redlining, having the worst health outcomes, so it directly transposes to what happens now with chronic disease, quality of life, even life expectancy. So that's a that's a direct correlate. Now, if you also look at those areas in terms of saying, well, what is their capacity for Wi-Fi and what how much video? um versus telephonic telehealth are those communities doing, there's also a correlation. So again, it is, um, we think these things are historical remnants of the way that cities have been set up, but they absolutely have a through line into all kinds of very, very urgent issues, especially in health equity that we need to be dealing with today. And again, I didn't go into medicine to be talking about technology, and yet, this is an absolute cornerstone for for health equity.
1: Yeah. And so um, moving geographically a bit, oftentimes we hear about how telehealth can be used to bring health care to rural areas. As I mentioned earlier, yeah. I'm in rural Colorado right now visiting my family, um, and we have lots of wildfires here. And so sometimes the, yeah. the internet goes out for long periods of time. Um, sometimes it just does because it's very windy and we're on the plains. Um do you think that telehealth being brought into this rural these rural areas is actually happening on mass, or are there still barriers to bringing this technology to rural areas? And maybe it's just being used as lip service.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't have a definitive yes/no on that. I think that um, absolutely um, there is work on all parts of the country. You know, I know um, President Biden has pra- passed legislation and investment. Um, for broadband access for the entire country um, and improving broadband access. Um, you know, I think that the other piece that really needs to go hand in hand with that is, again, not just the access, but how do we um, work together to think about um, the sort of health literacy piece and the tech literacy piece that comes with that, right? So just because you can get onto something, just because you have access um, and your broadband works doesn't actually mean that you'll be able to, A, you know, kind of like we just talked about, advocate um, for, for the, what you need in a in health visit. Um, and B, you, um, you may not actually um, be able to get onto, for instance, video. And what's gonna be the parity of um, reimbursement for video versus telephonic moving forward. So those things are really critical one of the kind of things that my colleagues and I um, argue for is almost thinking about it like the 911 um, call to action, right? So there was a national move where anybody that was having an emergency, no matter where you are in the country, you can pick up the phone and you can call 911. So how do we have something that is that centralized federally so that all parts of the country have access to a good platform for telehealth where where it's standardized um, and that you get shoulder-to-shoulder support to get on that technology. What do we actually need to advocate for moving forward and, and thinking really big and creatively?
1: Is there a health system or a company um, that you think is doing health literacy well? Or if you were to imagine the ideal uh, implementation of health literacy, what do you think it would look like?
2: way that we understand healthcare delivery now is that if you actually want a person to be healthy, um, it's everything that's happening outside of the hospital or the clinic or, you know, all of that and thinking about um, what are some of the upstream measures, right? So how are we incorporating health literacy in K through 12? And so, you know, actually kind of, doing this kind of um, language early so that, you know, somebody as they're learning to read are also learning different parts of the body, or like, when you're in a chemistry class in high school, how are you learning how to read um, medications, and, you know, sort of thinking like more holistically about the way that we do literacy, and that it's not that you have to become health literate the moment you walk into a clinic.
1: Yeah and do you also think it's it's on the part of health systems to promote tech literacy as well? I think
2: Absolutely, we have to be part of that dialogue. It cannot be on our shoulders alone, right? It's, um, we are, we are all kind of crushed by the increasing demands, um, on our shoulders. Um, but, you know, I think one of the good things that's happening right now in healthcare is this value based care where we're, um, slowly but surely, um, in some pockets adapting faster than others moving away from this kind of fee for service and moving towards value based care where we can actually be saying okay let's get paid per patient to keep them healthy and we don't that doesn't mean we have to do things to them doesn't mean we have to get them in the office a certain number of times it means we can actually be you know very proactive and so with that, with value-based care, I think tech equity is going to be a critical component of that, especially since telehealth isn't going to go away. Um, it certainly won't be like it was, you know, the heyday of the pandemic, but it should actually be one of the arms that we're working towards. That being said, and I referenced it before from the National Academy of Medicine, there absolutely has to be a call to action to the technology companies to do their part, uh, right? And so, Um, we have to be, it's not, it's not that there's a divide. It's not like we're, uh, you know, by, it doesn't have to be a bipartisan thing. It's just thinking more creatively, um, to come up with solutions together, um, that really, again, are focused on all people, especially those who are, um, traditionally most marginalized, because those are the people who are going to be left out unless that, that production can happen now. And, and that partnership can happen now.
1: Well, we already coined a term, so why don't we also just send this out as a call to action? (laughs) Perfect.
2: Perfect. Yes. Terms and actions. Lots to do.
1: Well, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, I hope we will be in touch again in the future. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Annie Berkey and Catherine Barnett next up we'll talk about what providers can do to break down barriers to care for gender diverse populations but first i have an announcement this month we are hosting another fierce jpm week it is going to be an exciting gathering of some of the greatest minds in pharma and healthcare during the conference we'll take stock of current trends talk about the issues to watch for in 2023 and we'll also talk about innovation strategies. Join us on January 10th in San Francisco or catch us on January 17th through 19th for the virtual programming. Sign up at fiercejpmweek.com or look for the link in our show notes. We are in the midst of a historic surge of anti-trans laws and proposed bills. There are so many. NPR reported that state legislators introduced at least 306 bills targeting transgender people over the past two years. That is a record-breaking number, more than any other period in history. Here's a few examples. In March, Oklahoma passed legislation banning transgender women and girls from competing on sports teams consistent with their gender at public schools and colleges. In December, Arizona began filing a bill that aims to restrict the use of student-preferred pronouns in schools. Also last year, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, ordered the state's Child Welfare Department to investigate parents and medical professionals for child abuse if they provided gender-affirming care to trans youth. Gender-affirming care can include medical, social, or psychological care, and studies show it reduces depression and improves well-being. Whether it's not allowing educators to acknowledge sexual orientation or gender identity, like the Florida Don't Say Gay or Trans bill, or criminalizing healthcare for trans youth or barring access to appropriate restrooms, these attacks harm our gender diverse community. And experts agree that the political landscape is fueling a rise in hate speech. A report from mid December found that two dozen healthcare providers were the target of hate speech. There were even direct attacks. Boston Children's Hospital received a bomb threat. The hate speech and attacks were a retaliation against gender-affirming care, which includes a wide range of medical, social, and psychological care. Jerica Kirkley is the co-founder and chief medical officer of Plume. She talked with Fierce's Anastasia Gledkovskaya to discuss how she finds hope in the midst of this tense landscape. Here they are. Hi, Jerica. It's great to be chatting with you again.
3: Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
4: Of course. I wanted to talk to you today about the ongoing political attacks on gender-affirming care. There have been hundreds of anti-trans bills introduced this year alone, and it's only getting worse. That's extremely discouraging, but you've been vocal about the need to use your influence in the healthcare community um, through things like educating lawmakers, you know, engaging with them, making sure they understand the safety and necessity of gender affirming care. I'm curious if you can tell me a bit about how that's been going. Say the past couple of months, has it gotten more difficult, or have you encountered more engagement?
3: Sure. Well, you know, at Plume, we always say our vision is to really transform healthcare for every trans life, and we see ourselves doing that in a few different ways. And first and foremost, through direct patient care. And it can be challenging uh, to work, to provide care, you know, in the political environment that we're in, but we always try to remember that the care we provide is truly life-saving. And we know that it is. And so so that's probably one of the biggest ways that we can have an impact. And I'd say any any provider, any medical provider, healthcare organization um, is just providing that affirming care to trans folks. You know, we do take care of a large number of individuals and um, have... Uh, a, a lot of potential to to leverage that data and those insights we gain to inform the care not only of our community but of all trans people um, and also inform policy changes and I think when we can show on a large scale that that care is life saving and what that means in terms of you know dramatically reducing rates of depression anxiety suicidality improving quality of life um, that I, I do believe is where we can really move the needle on these things so on the policy side we 've you know we've probably spent <clears throat> the last 12 months, pretty steadily talking to legislators, uh, talking to Congress, the White House, <clears throat> um, and making sure that trans health is on their radar, of course, but also focusing on some specific policies to, to ensure access to healthcare for the trans community.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, like, did the midterms affect your efforts in this area at all? Like the, the the political landscape that is shaping up, do you have hope that you will be able to get through to lawmakers in this political climate? And if so, do you think that providing data on the value add of gender-affirming care for these individuals in this community uh, is the most effective way to do that?
3: I, I do have hope. Um, that we can reach lawmakers and and I know we have the support of a lot of lawmakers now of course that opinion can be divided I think you know one thing that we certainly have in our favor is an administration uh, that's the most pro-trans LGBTQ plus administration we've ever had Mm -hmm. and um, really pushing forward a lot of policies that can protect civil rights of queer and trans communities with the trans community it's a it's a large community and, and growing in visibility every day. We are seeing more folks being more comfortable coming out and, and living openly as their authentic selves, which is amazing, especially in the climate that we see now. I think the more that we can show um, the larger uh, amount of people we have in the studies that we're reporting out on, um, I think it can be really impactful. And at the end of the day, organizations, especially in the healthcare community who are regulating a lot of this... Uh, are are looking at data, right, to support clinical policies, guidelines. Um, And um, so I do think that is an important part of it. Um, But I think the personal stories are are also uh, really impactful. And uh, because at the end of the day, you know, we all want to be healthy and happy, right? Mm -hmm. No matter who we are, what happens when somebody can live as their authentic self? What happens when they have access to healthcare that affirms them? Mm-hmm. um and, and it really is beautiful and we very privileged we get to see that every day right we take care of thousands upon thousands of trans people and um have patients message us or, or talk to us and tell mm-hmm. us just how great they're doing right because they were able to get an appointment um that they're like literally alive today because they had access to this care and and oh they're um you know they were able to get a job that they really wanted they were able to go back mm-hmm. to school finish a degree um uh secure housing in a way they hadn't been able to before. And so so we see these stories being lived out every day. And and the more we can get that out, um, I think to other people who, again, just like want the same thing for themselves, I think that's where that, that connection point can start to take place.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Like spotlighting the the positives and the wins. So I wanted to take a step back and um maybe consider all the different entities that are involved in either facilitating or controlling this access to, the, to this care. Um, so there are medical schools, right? There are providers in practice, and then there are the overarching laws and policies that we were just talking about. Maybe we can start with medical and nursing schools. Like, What is the sort of training, maybe you can speak to your own experience that physicians receive or don't receive uh, on providing gender-affirming care?
3: Yeah, it's a great question on so, and yeah, I love that framework of looking at the educational framework, um, you know, what the provider landscape looks like, and of course the the policy and legislative landscape, and they're all critical. They're all you know equally important. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that educational uh, arena is is so important because, of course that's where it all starts. And um, that's the foundation that we're putting out there for all of our healthcare providers. And historically, there has not been a lot of education uh, when it comes to even basic cultural competency. <clears throat> for the trans community, uh, you know, for many marginalized communities for that matter, um, and even less when it comes to the clinical competency and, and things like being able to prescribe gender affirming hormone therapy, uh, or training surgeons on gender affirming surgery, which of course are just two components of gender affirming care, which is really includes any type of healthcare um, provided that's informed by the lived experience of trans people, right? There's a, The study that came out in 2011, which said on average in medical schools, there's about five hours of education dedicated to LGBTQ plus healthcare. Uh, now within that, uh, most schools actually had nothing uh, dedicated to trans health. Um, now that's changed a little bit over time, but it, it's still overwhelmingly um, a, a very small minority and oftentimes an optional uh, we'll say like elective or course. So not standardized by any means yet across medical schools, nursing schools, nurse practitioner training, PA training, pharmacy schools, behavioral health. Um, right. There's so many components. Right. Um, and, uh, but I, but I do think that is, um, ultimately how we start to address this problem. Now, the issue with that is we're looking at, in, in many cases, like a seven year lead time to, you know, even get that workforce out into the public. So it takes a while Um, and that's best case scenario where you wave a magic wand and everybody gets that education, right? (laughs) And so, um, and I certainly have a lot of thoughts on how I think the digital health environment can really help that, right? And I think places like Plume where we're providing teaching every day to clinical teams on how to do this care Mm -hmm. uh, and do it really well. So I think it can be this incredibly creative and productive outlet for education Um, of the, um, of the entire healthcare community. But that, that is a big piece of it for sure.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that a lack of representation, you know, of not having enough trans or non-binary individuals teaching at these schools affects, you know, the level of um, prioritization that this takes?
3: We all know that representation is important in anything, right? And so I think absolutely increasing the representation of our provider workforce um, of trans and non-binary individuals and, of course, with many layers of intersectionality beyond that um, is important to making sure that those um, priorities are actually priorities for the schools, right, and, and for the clinics who are doing this care. Um, I think we're, we're kind of a walking, living, breathing example of that. You know, we're a company that's trans-founded um, many, most of our company, in fact, over two-thirds of our company is trans or gender-diverse in some way. Um, and of Mm -hmm. course all of our patients are gender diverse as well. So, um, and that's purposeful because we want to make sure that we're representing that lived experience as best we can.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So say a school is, or is not providing future providers of this care with, with this knowledge, say you are past your residency, you're about to start work, are there any resources that you recommend providers can engage in to, to help build this uh, clinical and cultural training?
3: Yeah, there are quite a few resources out there. Uh, most of these are free. Um, some of them you can pay for as well. But uh, for example, with gender affirming Care specifically, there's multiple guidelines that exist. And, and guidelines have existed for gender affirming Care for now almost 50 years. And, um, but one example is WPATH, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. Um, and so that's something that uh, can be a, a good foundation. It, it's a it's a set of guidelines that's, you know, uh, evolved a lot over time uh, historically has been uh, actually a little bit of gatekeeping and the, the, some of the requirements, so to speak, that were out there to be able to access care. Fortunately, a lot of those have gone away and it's a bit more objective and just looking at, you know, what data do we have? How can we help and support trans folks? Um, UCSF has a Center of Excellence for Transgender Care a uh, wonderful resource. They have a set of what they call their primary care um, gender-affirming care guidelines, and um, very practical and, and taken from some of the other guidelines that are out there. And really, um, I think a good balance of, of seeing what's uh, the actual patients and providers experience. And they have some other modules where you can just learn more generally about LGBTQ plus competency uh, Fenway health and Fenway Institute's another great one. They're a community health center based out of Boston and they have a research Institute associated with them. Um, and, and they've been one of the leaders um, in the LGBTQ health space for many years. And so they have a lot of uh, free modules um, and all these places have conferences that you can go to as well and get yeah. a, um, a ton of information. Um, and, and those occur typically on an annual or biannual basis. One other I'll throw out there, um, is a company called Violet, um, who's fantastic and they're actually developing a lot of cultural competency training modules
4: that's right and, that's right and right even an,
3: uh yeah and even an in indexing and scoring um for uh for cultural and clinical competency and so um so there's yeah there's some really cool uh programs out there oh in fact i was just hearing about uh, mount sinai has a an lgbtq plus fellowship for physicians now which i think is one of the the first and not the first um,
4: wow. specific
3: fellowship. That's for
4: that. great. Yeah. Thank you for those resources. And it's, it's wild to think that this is like, that, like you said, Mount Sinai's offering is one of the first uh, in this area. That's, um, you know, it's great to see that more providers mm-hmm. broadly are paying attention to this and not providers like Plume that are, you know, specifically focused on this population. And that's something actually that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, do you think that, in an ideal world, there would be no need for LGBTQ specific providers, like it would just be a part of all primary care or, you know, any provider that you could see would be able to serve this community in a culturally appropriate way? Or do you see a future where there will still be LGBTQ specific providers um, that will naturally just be more attuned to that community and
3: be better trained? It's a great question. I I think in an ideal world, certainly everybody should have some element of that training, right? Um, and it should be built into our training programs across the board in healthcare, and and that will no doubt uh, lead to uh, saving lives. Quite quite frankly, um, you know, because just even having that affirming environment, we know goes a long way. Whether you know how to prescribe hormones or or do any other element of the actual clinical care. Um uh, just having that affirming environment, understanding where folks are coming from is, is step one. And I think we all can do that, hands mm-hmm. down. Um, but also having uh, care centers where this care is done a lot and is very routine. And we've seen thousands upon thousands upon thousands of examples um, and and can help inform you know, guidelines for care and, and certainly be consultants for other people um, is also really important, too. Right, so I think they—you um, can't have one without the other. So yeah, I think it's a, a two-pronged approach.
4: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think there will always be a need for some sort of specialty care, um, but like you said, it's—you um, know—it would be critical to expanding access to this care if if more providers generally were uh, knowledgeable about this. And I wanted to come back to something that you told me the last time that we spoke that stuck with me. Um, you had said that it's always great to have champions, but if the system at large is not supportive, it starts to undermine what one or two people can do. Can you talk about that whole system approach and why you think it's so critical to fostering this um, gender affirming environment?
3: Absolutely, the healthcare system is is quite complex. I think as we're all very well aware, and <clears throat> we're dealing with everything from multiple ways of paying for healthcare. Of healthcare providers getting reimbursed for care um, there's many components operationally between labs and pharmacies um who and many different companies within that right you know we started plume we kind of stepped outside the system a bit to be able to do that um but, like to really in our in our minds in ways to to radically transform access, it means you got to figure out how to connect to those systems
0: mm-hmm. um, because
3: again, for better or for worse, there's a lot of people who rely on health insurance right mm-hmm. um, that comes from their employers or wherever it might be a government program or marketplace, and um, they're they're relying on using that to pay for their health care <clears throat> so for example, I mean one thing that we're we're doing now and, and getting set up for the next year um, and already starting to 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 put into action is, um, so that patients can use their health insurance, uh, for plume, right. Mm -hmm. And for gender affirming care. And, uh, that's just one example. The more that we can align folks, bring people along on this mission and just, you know, understanding the trans experience, uh, I think we're, we're all going to be, um, better off.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Thanks for explaining that. So I guess last question for today is just what keeps you going? you know why do you do what you do?
3: Yeah, you know it probably gets back to some of the messages I mentioned that come from our patients, right? I just unsolicited organic messages coming in saying how grateful they are for this care you know that they're uh, that they're alive today because of this care and that they're they're actually better than they ever have been um because they've had access to this care. And that's what keeps me going. And I think for us, we just see so much potential, right. In terms of expanding that scale, mm-hmm. um, expanding, uh, that networking with <clears throat> the healthcare system, being able to make this more affordable, uh, easier to access. So that's it's extremely exciting to me.
4: Yeah. Yeah, it should be. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being here to talk about it and thank you for your work. Um, uh, you know, it's exciting to hear that you will have some expanded peer partnerships. We'll look forward to to hearing more about that soon, but
0: thanks so much.
3: Yeah. Thank you, Anastasia. I really appreciate it.
0: That was Jerica Kirkley, she, her, and Anastasia Gledkovskia she, her. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey, she, her. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson he, him. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Tune in next week on Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.